You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Well, good morning. Pretty awesome, right? That's a vision and something God put on the heart of one of our elders, Luke Jones, and he has been praying about it for about a year now and preparing, and so we're excited to launch that, list, launch that this year. If you have a boy in that age range, please sign him up, let us know so we can get prepared for who we will have, and if God is putting it on your heart to lead, well, guess what? We need leaders, so please uh, don't be shy. Come and help this next generation know what it means to be a man, a man of God, more specifically. We are in this series, Compelled, and 1 Corinthians 9.16 is our verse. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll have this memorized. But it is Paul saying, because of the grace of God, he has compelled me to preach the gospel. Woe to me, death to me, devastation to me, suffering. It will be bad for me. Should I not do this? I am compelled to, right? Just like you are compelled every day to take a breath. Aren't you? You're compelled. You don't realize it. It's subconscious, but you're doing it. Try stop doing it. Woe to you should you stop breathing. It will be death to you. I I, want to get this across because this is the same level of compelled that Paul is talking about here. The words he's using is to that understanding that it is that life-giving to me that I preach the gospel. Woe to me should I stop. The life that has been afforded me through Jesus Christ compels me. And so through this series, we're talking about what you are compelled to do in the name of Christ. And we started with worship, right? The Psalms, which was awesome. I meant to have that here, but we had a stack of Psalms this high, over 300 up here, and I've saved them and um, set them aside, and I've looked through some of them, and it's amazing to see that when nobody knows who you are and you don't have to come up front, you write down really personal stuff on those. So we're matching handwriting with other samples we have to find out who you are so we can fix all your problems. No, not at all. Um, If you're watching from home, we're so glad to have you with us. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 15, 7 through 8. So we opened up with worship. My father spoke last week on being compelled to forgive. who, Who was here for that? It's amazing. I listened to that and that idea of forgiveness. I'm compelled to forgive just as Christ has forgiven me, right? And it's something that we need to learn. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us to forgive because it doesn't come natural. It does not come. Who who can give me an amen on that, right? Especially somebody who hasn't asked for your forgiveness or doesn't want it and is continuing to be somebody in your life that's a thorn. Forgiving them, yeah, you need the Holy Spirit for that. And then this morning, we're going to talk about compelled to generosity, but not the kind of generosity perhaps you've heard in churches before where I'm going to talk about money and tithe and giving. No, that's easy for us, actually. You know, that's actually too easy for us as Americans. You see what's going on in Afghanistan, and I could provide you a text number right now and say, everybody, text this number for each member in your household. If you give 10 bucks, we'll have $5,000 by the end of the day. We'll send it to a ministry that is doing good work over there. I know where it's going to go. It's going to go directly, and we'd be like, yeah, absolutely. 
And we'd be like, look how generous I was today. I have eight kids. That was a lot for me. No, it wasn't. I want to talk about being compelled to generosity, the kind that Christ has called us to, the kind that sparked the early church movement, the kind that caused nations to come under its control because people said, I will give my life to others. I will find my self-esteem, my self-love in loving others around me because this is how my Savior, my Lord, has taught me to do it. It's completely backwards to what the world is doing, and yet it's how Christ said we will find joy in this life. So if you've been paying attention at all to the news, you know that there is a situation going on once again in the Middle East, and one of the largest targets currently under the new regime that has moved in is Christians, Christian brothers and sisters there. Now, when we think about prayer, and we think we need to pray for them, the first thing that comes to your mind is to pray for their safety, pray they can get out, and God protect them, keep them from the evils that these men are currently doing to them and will continue to do in the coming weeks, right? You want to know what's crazy? That's not their prayer. If you've read any reports from Christians who are embedded deep and have been there and have been serving, their prayer isn't, get me out of here, because if they could have gotten out, many of them could have. But their prayer has been, Lord, sustain me as I stay here. Sustain me as I continue to serve the people here. And if you require my life of me this week, this is an actual quote, I'm ready to give it. (laughs) Blows our minds. We were getting ready to be happy with ourselves for that $10 donation that I talked about earlier. And this person is compelled to stay in a region where they will die in the next couple weeks unless there is a massive intervention by God. And they say, so be it. I'm compelled. I'm compelled to share the love of Christ and and the threat from these men and whatever guns they have, whatever method of torture they have, it's not enough to detour me because I'm compelled to share his love. I can't stop. And so I began to think about this, and I thought, so how do I pray, God? Because if take this for a second. So let's say your prayers came true. And let's say that thousands of Christian Afghanis, men and women, and their children are able to get on a plane provided by us in America, be led to safety, be put up somewhere in one of our cities in an apartment, because this is what is happening to many right now, to be given what they need for food and air conditioning and and transportation and everything just handed to them. Now imagine this just keeps happening for them. And then they're told here in whatever city they come, TV, here's a Wi-Fi password, you can watch Jesus on TV and your church on TV. We'll take care of your food, everything is going to be taken care of for you. Which is worse persecution? Someone who goes from trusting the name of Jesus for everything, their daily bread, the roof over their head, the safety of their life, to having every one of those things taken care of for them by our government. Which is more persecution? Think about that for a second when you're praying. Is the idea of what will happen to them horrible? Yes. 
I, I can't imagine it. And don't get me wrong, I do pray, God, spare them. Hide them, keep them, protect them. But at the end of the day, Lord, it's not my agenda. I'm trying to pray into heaven. I'm asking for your will to be done in that place. So, Lord, align my thoughts and my prayers with your will. And I know his will, right? He hasn't kept it a secret from us, has he? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Give generously to those who are around you. Give to those who hurt you. The pagans give to those who love them. Give to those who are your enemy. Love your enemy. Forgive your enemy. So it's not like his will is a secret. So why do we still pray our will over situations? Fascinating, right? This has been my... My, my conundrum all week is I've been in this prayer and I've been doing this thing for over a month now where I'm trying to praise the Lord more than I'm asking for things and I'm changing my mindset about what it is to go before my Father. And as I go before Him in this situation, I praised Him that I was given a perspective change in my life this week on what it means to be compelled to share who He is. He changed my perspective. The world is going to see the king of kings in a way they haven't seen before. Because these Christian men and women said, we won't run. We won't run. We're not going to leave. We're going to stay here, even if it requires our lives. And the world's going to say, what kind of love is that? How, how can you do that? And this is how the kingdom of God has advanced over every continent on this earth for the last 2,000 years. Amen? So we're going to pray, we're going to pray, and I want each of you, wherever you're at, to pray. You can pray with a spouse or whoever you're sitting next to, you can pray by yourself. I want you to speak out loud. Remember, the devil and his demons do not know your thoughts. They cannot read your thoughts, so speak it out loud. And I'm going to turn my mic off so I don't distract you. We're just going to spend a few minutes in prayer. We're going to ask that God's will be done there. You can ask him to protect those people, yes, but at the end of the day, Lord, would your name be glorified in that? In whatever happens that Thank you, Lord. 
two men in the Christian faith in the last 150 years who could be considered two of the greatest men to advance the gospel in the what in uh, what we would be you know as the West from the UK over to us here in America would be Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham, right? Two men that unequivocally have spread the gospel in such an incredibly powerful way. Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers, and when he heard that about himself, he said, as great as that is, I'd rather be the Prince of Prayers. And oftentimes when people went to his church there, they would come and when he gave them a tour, he would go down into the basement and he would say, here is the powerhouse of our church. And during every single service Spurgeon ever preached out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, down in the basement was a group of people praying over the entire service, praying over him, praying over those who attended. He attributes prayer to the reason his ministry and that God anointed him. He says, without that, it doesn't matter how I preach. Billy Graham, I heard this story just a few weeks ago through a podcast. Early on, this, this pastor had met with a friend of Billy Graham's who had known him from the beginning. And there was a point in time when Billy Graham was an unknown preacher, right, in his early 20s, and this guy was talking with another man who was more prominent in the faith, and he said, who do you think is going to be the next great preacher? And this guy starts naming off names that at the time were big and and had large followings, and this man said, I think it's going to be Billy. And this other guy goes, Billy, he can't preach, what did he say? Oh, it was fantastic. He couldn't hold uh, people's attention in a bucket of water, uh, a bucket, something like that, one of those things where you're like, no one's going to listen to Billy. And he said, have you listened to Billy pray, though? He said, go listen to Billy pray. How Billy prays will determine what he preaches. And Billy Graham was an incredible prayer warrior. Above all else, whatever he did in his evangelism and in his ministry, he had such a great relationship with the Lord. This morning, I'm telling you that if we can't get to the prayer part. If, if I know I've spent weeks on it, and i got to move on, but if we can't get out of ourselves enough to lay our desires and, and put our minds and our hearts before God, none of the rest of this stuff matters. It is all just religion, and, and you're just sitting here through it, bored out of your mind. Unless he's your father, unless you believe that you move the hand of God through your prayers. That when the community gathers around, God moves when he sees his children faithful in prayer. Do not be shy in your prayers. Matthew 15, 7 through 8 is where I had you open up to. (laughs) You hypocrites. That's not me. It's Matthew. How it opens up. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They are not compelled at all by my spirit. They speak words but have nothing to back it up with. Turn to John 6, 41 through 48. John 6, 41 through 48. It says, as the Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they said, is not this just Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know. How can he say he came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus said. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. It is written in the prophets that they will be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him will come to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes will have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Are you compelled by God's Spirit, to partake in the bread of life? Are you actually compelled to do it? And this is, this is what I want to talk about this morning, specifically this idea of generosity, this idea of our time, our precious, precious time. What's so wonderful is that even though we are such a wealthy nation, we have the same amount of time as those in the poor, poorer nations and poorer parts of this world, Right? We don't get extra time. We all have the same hours in the day, no matter how rich or how poor you are. We are equal on that. And so what do you do with your time? It's easy for us to give money here in America. It's tough for us to give time to things that do not directly benefit us. Because time is truly a resource that is very limited, is it not? And so how do we become generous with our time? Well, Jesus says the Father first has to draw you. He has to call you. If, if, you don't, if, he, if the Father does not call you, you cannot even want Jesus Christ, let alone think of him as the bread of life, as your Savior. So if you're in here this morning and you've, you've said, Lord, be, 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 be Lord of my life, take away my sins, I repent, and, and you are actively seeking him and trying to follow after him, would you just like, yes, Lord, right now, right? Yes, Lord. You forget it. We, 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 it falls by the wayside as, yeah, I accepted Jesus Christ. Did you? According to Jesus, you only made that proclamation because his father drew you and called you out. And so from that, what does that compel you to do? What are you compelled to do? Maybe for you it's not preach. But for everybody, it is forgive, it is worship, it is generosity. This is why I started with these three. Because these don't have to do with a gift from God. These don't have to do with personality. These don't have to do with how you were raised. These are just some basic fruit of the Spirit. I worship, I forgive, and I'm generous to others. These are foundational things, right? So what do you do with a country so wealthy as America and with people who are sons and daughters of the king who are rather overall, not us obviously, but as a church in America, are rather stingy with their time. We would rather give money than time. What do you do? James 1, 2 through 4 says, would you consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance, and let perseverance finish, it work, finish its work so that you may mature and be complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Your perseverance in faith will lead you to a place where you lack nothing. You don't lack the time. 
You won't lack the resources. You won't lack the knowledge. Think about this for a second. Nothing. This man, this book, I've said this from the beginning, but this series is um, inspired by this book by P.G. Vargas. He's a pastor. He's founded the Indian Evangelical team, and he has established over 5,000 Christian churches in India, a place that has already thousands and thousands of gods, and yet somehow in the midst of all those gods, the people are still hungry because what they're eating isn't fulfilling, right? And so how he started his ministry, God called him. He was in the Indian army. He was, uh, you know, addicted to drugs, alcohol, women, all the things that us men think might fill that void. And God sets him free from all of that. And God calls him to leave where he grew up and go and begin to minister. And this is how his ministry started. He had this little thing of tracts. Remember Bible tracts that talk about Jesus? And we used to hand him out. He has this thing of tracts, and he goes down to the train station where tons of people come and go and begins to sell these tracts. And as he's standing there, he's just speaking his testimony. This is what happened in my life. He has no biblical foundation, no theological training. He's barely even read scripture. And yet it's story after story of the beginning of people coming to know the saving love of Jesus Christ because in the midst of tens of thousands of gods in the Hindu culture, he is the only one standing in this train station presenting something that actually has substance. And the people see it. I don't know how they see it. That just baffles my mind that they would have even given this guy the time of day. He's dressed in rags. He has no nice clothes. He has sold off his possessions. It's part of what he and God have talked about as they go through ministry. He is not particularly good-looking or well-spoken. He is just this tiny, what we would consider to be insignificant man who, because of his faithfulness, has established over 5,000 churches and hundreds of thousands of Indian men and women have come to know the Lord because he would go and stand in a train station and just tell his testimony. That's how simple it is. That's how little God asks of us, right? And as he was faithful in that little, God gave him more and more and more because he knew he could trust him. He could trust him to be in charge of a multi-million dollar, uh, hundreds of acres, thousands of acres of land that has been given and been developed with schools and churches. And it started because he would just go and share his testimony at the train tracks. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind because that testing will create perseverance. Creates perseverance. In the Middle East right now, specifically in Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters are going through a trial that we can, it it is all of our worst nightmare. Honestly, the scariest thing for me isn't even death. I feel like if I was there and I was called, I could die. I would stay and I could die. I've gotten to that point. But when I read a story of a man who had his arms cut off and then watched as they killed his family but took his 10-year-old daughter and kept her alive to be given to the other men and then killed him, that was hard. That caused me to start to go before God and say, what are you doing? In the midst of all this faith and all this praise and all this worship, Me and God had it out over that one (laughs) because I have a 10-year-old daughter and I couldn't imagine that 
I would just assume take her life before they could get to me so she wouldn't have to endure that. And yet even in that, God is sovereign, is watching over her, cares for her, and every other woman who is currently in a situation like this, and he has a plan, and he is working mightily in their life, more than I could ever do. And it's a humbling thing to realize, God, I am not you, and I do not understand how you allow this to happen. But I will trust you. I will persevere. And so I want to leave us with, what is it, seven? Seven things he mentions in this book when he talks about the blessings of the Lord. As he talks about the transforming power of God, he says the way you respond when you're under attack speaks volumes about the level of God's grace and power at work in your life. And so he says, here are some ways to respond. The first is don't let your emotions rule you. After all, that's really what happened when I read that story, right? I've been standing strong, I've been interceding, I've been praying, I've been going before the Lord and trusting Him, and then I heard a story that hit super close to home, and all of a sudden my emotion was like, nope, that's not okay. We can't do that. And I had to come back around. I had to be put in check. Don't let your emotions rule you. Right now, you may not like what the government's doing. You may not like what's going on in this whole pandemic and what I'm seeing through social media because it is the voice of our culture, unfortunately, is Christian men and women lashing out from emotion. Do not let your emotions control you. Instead, do press into his presence and walk in the Spirit. God never called us as Christians under the saving grace of his son, Jesus Christ, to get revenge. He said, revenge is his. Where did I hear it said? I heard it just this weekend, I thought. People who love to say, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. And that should scare the crap out of you. (laughs) Like, I love how they always say it so proudfully, like, only God can judge me. They even get it tattooed on them. That should scare you like nothing else. Like, if I judge you, so what? But God Almighty, all right, okay, at least you know it. Don't judge me. God's called us to walk in his spirit, not be ruled by our emotions. Number two, don't doubt God's ability or his concern. And it was really good I was studying this week. I was studying this this week because when I got that story, that's like I struggled. And when I saw this point, right, don't doubt God's ability or his concern. Ask for wisdom and expect him to give it. Do ask for wisdom. So that's what I had to do because I couldn't come to grips in my mind with what I would do in that situation or or how I would feel or the betrayal I would feel from my God or whatever emotion was there. And I love how he wrote this here. These are from this book. He says, do ask for wisdom and what? Expect him to give it. This is like I talked about a few weeks back when we started this whole idea of praise for prayer is when my son asks what's for dinner, he doesn't ask if dinner is coming. He asks when dinner is coming or what's for dinner. The assumption is already there that dinner is coming. My father has the means and my father has always provided. My father will continue to provide. Just how is he going to provide is really the question I'm asking. What's for dinner? Same way, 
Not, God, will you give me wisdom? Can you give me wisdom? God, when you give me wisdom, help me to see it and recognize it. Because it's coming. I expect it to come. So help me see it. Number three, don't focus on the circumstances. Do pray that God's will be done. And this goes to what I opened up the sermon with. The circumstances are get everybody out there, get everybody safe, throw them all in a plane, get them here, put them up in a comfortable, safe space. That's the circumstances. But Lord, your will be done. How much worse would it be for them to come over here and fall away from their God because we gave them so much comfort they never had that they just walked away from who God was? They fell into the God of America, which is comfort and adulation and money and power. Think about that for a second. As much as you may pity them, as much as you may fear for them and their life in the current situation that they could be killed at any moment, how much more should you pity yourself that we live in a nation where the church, God's church in America, is so asleep that we just year by year, bit by bit, accept more of the world and push more of God's truth away. To where we're at a point now where Christians do not stand up for the difference between a man and a woman. Instead, they adjoin the confusion and the muddling of the two. They do not stand up for sex between a man and a woman. Instead, we say, love is love. Let me love my neighbor. They do not stand up for life. We do not stand up for social justice. We do not stand up. And when we do, it's often out of our emotions. And we're either yelling at the other side or we're yelling at each other. And the grace of God is not evident in our life. Which is worse, the slow death of a Christian in America who slowly falls away and never even notices it, or the person who is compelled and living a life compelled to do everything they can for Christ, and that life is cut short by our definition by death in his name? I ask you, which is worse? Number four, don't jump ship. Don't just bell. Don't just say, I'm not turning on the news. I'm not going to church. I'm not, I'm not going to enter these arguments. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Don't do that. Stay faithful. Remain faithful. Remain faithful in your prayer life. Remain faithful to your family. Lead your family. Be an example to your children. Be an example to those who you work with, to your neighbors. Don't just jump ship and say, I'm out. Fifth, don't grow impatient. This one's like, no, come on. I was with you until that. We are an impatient people here in this country. <laughs> Do let endurance develop into full maturity. Endure. Endure a tough season in your life. Endure a tough season in our country. Endure a tough season with your health. Endure a tough season financially. Let it mature. Let it mature you. Let it mature your walk with the Lord. Maybe it's the thing you needed to compel you to do something for him. And lastly, don't give in to discouragement or bitterness. Do rejoice, for the battle is his and the victory is secure. Amen? Do not give in to discouragement. That is the enemy's, one of his number one tactics, especially over here, is discourage them. Have them get bitter at each other and at those who oppose them. 
have them get bitter at a government that's changing its rules and causing them to be more whatever. Just get bitter, get angry. No, don't. I'm telling you this morning, fight against that. That's a lie. Rebuke the devil when he tells you to be bitter. Rebuke him out loud. You can do it right now. Shut up, Satan. I will not be bitter because my God has already won the battle. You're defeated. He's allowing this time so that more people can come to know who he is and that his glory might be known because he is a patient, loving God who is long-suffering. But you, my friend, are defeated and you will die and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So you have nothing for me. None of what you tell me is true and be gone. You have to be this bold. You cannot, what's a better way of saying this word? Dance around. I think you know what I was trying to say. Dance around talking to the devil and be like, oh, go away, Satan. You're mean, Satan. Come on, don't do that. Wake up. He's not coming at you like that. He's coming at you with everything he average Christian in the American church. We look at service. We look at joining a small group. We look at being a mentor. We look at being a mentee, somebody who needs a mentor in their life. And we say, I've got so many things going on, I couldn't possibly. You don't, you don't understand. I can't, I can't. And this always brings me back to this story Blake told me. I've been on the board with Paladin Sports for seven years now. And it's been such a blessing to be able to take the message of Christ, put it out in the community, and just love the community, right? No strings attached. Cheap prices. Get your kids in. Every kid gets to play. Everybody gets to know what it means to be part of a team. We teach integrity, character traits. We pray before and after games. It's awesome, right? One of the number one complaints that Blake has filled over these last few years that he, that he was over it was when all of our coaches are volunteers, by the way. Just I got to say that so you know is when we have Christian parents come to us and say our coach is a Mormon. And I, we don't like that. We don't like him leading prayer and teaching our kids and, or, or, or our court coach is Catholic or our coach is something else. And you know what Blake's response is? Would you like to coach? Well, no, we can't. I mean, I would love to, but I can't. We're so busy. And then his next words are, do you think that the Mormons aren't busy too? Do you think that they don't have jobs and eight, eight kids? The truth is, either you're compelled to generosity or you're not. You can't fake it. You can't make it up. You can't try. You need to get on your knees before God and say, Lord, renew a right heart within me. I need you to change me in this area, Lord. Right? And for many of us, that just starts with becoming a mentor or a mentee saying, I need someone to help Lead me in my life. Maybe it is a small group. Maybe it is your neighbor. Maybe it is you've got a tight neighborhood or, or, or a really close work relationship, and that's where you need to begin to invest time, and you need to make time. It cannot be an afterthought. It has to be the first thing you do, and then everything else gets built on that. Are you compelled to generosity? My goal this week is for you to put that as the forefront of your mind and in your prayers and in your thoughts and to say, okay, God, go to battle with him. Let's see what I need to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us, that you are unbelievably patient, that you lead us into repentance, that you lead us into righteousness, that you love us beyond anything that I could them that you love those over there in 
Afghanistan more than I could possibly ever dream to. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead your church here in Santan Valley, that you would lead us into a compelling faith, God, that you would lead us into forgiveness, that you would lead us into proper worship, that you would lead us, God, and that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Open our eyes, God. Remove our prejudices. Remove our our blinders, God. Give us perspective that lets us see you and then compel us to follow. In Jesus' name. We're going to come to the Lord's table now as we observe the supper of the Lamb. If you didn't have a chance, we have the bread and the juice on the back table there. You can come before the Lord this morning and observe this supper because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we observe it here not out of tradition, not because we have to, but because Christ said when you gather together, do this, why? So that you will remember me. Remember the sacrifice. So he took bread and he broke it and he said, this will be my body. It's given to you. The veil that once kept the Holy of Holies uh, as a place that was hidden from the rest of the people is replaced by his body and the veil was torn and we had access to the Father. And so when we partake of this, we remember that and we say, Lord, compel me to know you. In Jesus' name, let's eat together. None of this would be possible if it weren't for the blood of Christ. The innocent blood that was shed, that Jesus said would be the blood of a new covenant, his blood, and that it would cover all mankind and all sin. And so, Lord, as we're gathered here together, we thank you for the sacrifice of the cross and for the righteousness that you give us, unearned, unmerited, given in grace, fully justified. In Jesus' name, amen.